We are still in, as we're working through our study on 1 Samuel, we are going to get to the main character, and I'm not saying it's Samuel, very soon. Won't give away who that is yet. But for those of you that have missed Samuel, he's back with us in this chapter. If you've missed his presence, he's back, and he has a very important part in this chapter that is unfortunate but needed. If you'll remember, we're looking at the life of the kingship of King Saul, Israel's first king. And we saw a summation of his kingship as we finished up last week at the end of chapter 14. And from a secular societal standpoint, um, he's doing a great job. He is, the Lord is obviously enabling him, but he is defeating the enemies overall, even though the Philistines continue to be a trouble, a, a great uh, difficulty. And I think God has allowed the Philistines to get so strong again as a reminder to his people, even with a king, you still need me. And as we've seen, the Philistines have given them some great grief, and yet uh, God has given them victory. Um, but along the way, we're seeing Saul, he started out well, but we're seeing him make some choices that should be troubling to us. His biggest problem is that he continues to do things his own way first, and then it's almost like other people have to remind him, oh, let's, let's bring the Lord in. Let's see what the Lord wants. Um, and the first one of these uh, difficulties, the biggest one so far, is when he is waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifice before they can go into battle against the Philistines. And Samuel, as a test, waits till the very end of the time that he says he's going to be there. And Saul just says, well, we've got to go and offers a sacrifice. And Samuel says, you did not obey the Lord. You did things your own way. And because of that, your children, you will not have a dynasty. Your children will not be kings, which is really um, unfortunate because Saul has a son who obviously loves the Lord and is a very faithful follower of God. And because of his father's sin, the sins of the parents, even though God looks at us as individuals, it is true the sins of the parents do have an effect on the, the children. God can give victory and grace through that. And I think Jonathan, Jonathan wasn't one of those that held on to power. That felt like he had to have it. He just loved the Lord and he wanted to be used by God. And we see him do, make some bold moves that enables Israel, um, ultimately through God's power again. But through Jonathan's leadership, it encourages them to have victory over the Philistines. Meanwhile, his father, on the other hand, is hindering his own people, the Israelites, from victory by these unfortunate, foolish um, oaths and decisions that just don't speak of, of wisdom, that God's wisdom. It's like when Samuel leaves the picture and Saul's on his own, he just is not up to par with what, a, what we would expect of a king. He's certainly not on Samuel's level. However, we've seen good and bad in Saul, and we're still measuring his character here. The first king of Israel, is he a good king? Well, this chapter now is going to clinch that. It's going to tell us whether Saul is a good king or not. And Samuel comes to Saul again, and he has for him a great mission. 
um, a very special mission that is very important. So let's look at verse one here. Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken or listen thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Now Saul knew these things. Why is Samuel coming? Do you think that Saul had forgotten in the little bit of time that Samuel had been away from him? No. Samuel in this official presentation is um, presenting to Saul a special important mission for him to accomplish. And the importance of this mission um, is introduced with this special introduction that Samuel gives to him. It's if he's starting this out saying, basically, Saul, this is important. This is a prophetic message from the Lord. And then he gives Saul his credentials again. Why do you need to listen to me? I am the one that God sent to anoint you. I'm the prophet here. I'm the one. I'm the, the spiritual authority. And so you need to listen. Here's my credentials as the prophet. And in this instance, Saul, Samuel is acting as a prophet amongst his many things that he does. And then he stresses who gave him the message for Saul. Because ultimately it's not Samuel's message, but he says the Lord or the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of all armies, the Lord of all powers and armies, spiritual and national and physical. The Lord is over all of these things. And so you need to listen and pay close attention, Saul. Um, and then he describes here what this mission is. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, we're going to see in this passage a number of ways that, of, of verbs that God uses to describe his actions to Saul and to his people. Um, that are ways, and we'll talk more about this in just a minute. That, that seem to indicate, um, to, to help human, human beings understand in some form or fashion God's thinking and even, if I can say this, his divine emotions, so to speak. And so when he says that word, remember, it's not that he's saying, you know what, I, the other day, I was just thinking back upon my, my history and what I've done with Israel, and I remember those Amalekites, those enemies, and I have forgot to deal with them. And so Saul, Samuel, you go to Saul. We're going to deal with them. Should have done it earlier, but I remembered. No, let's, let's not have that picture here. The, really, the word means noted. The Lord of hosts is saying, I noted that which Amalek did to Israel. I know what you need to think that it's like some sort of sticky note or something where I had to put up and said, okay, now I'll remember. Basically, it has the idea of God, when the Amalekites did this thing, when they had their cruel response to his children, all the way back as they were traveling to Mount Sinai. That's how long ago it was. In their first battle with, um, the, with these enemies. When that happened, it's, it's, this word has the idea of God made an appointment in his divine calendar type thing that at some point this would be dealt with. And look how long he gave the enemies of Israel to get right and to come to him. Now, what we're, what we're going to talk about next and what God tells him to do can almost be disturbing to us. And sometimes we, we were so familiar with the story 
that we kind of just kind of glide over this. It, it is disturbing what God is calling Saul to do. And so we have to keep in mind that God has literally given these people maybe a thousand years, uh, at least 500 to 800 years of mercy with these Amalekites to come to him. And we know that um, from other passages of scripture that when people like Rahab, Ruth, from other nations turn to God, that God hears them and, and God shows them mercy. So God has been patient, but it's this appointment on his divine calendar was made from eternity past, right? And now it's come. And so he's saying, Saul, you're going, you are the one that's going to lead Israel in the battle. Uh, let's, let's go ahead real quick. Let's turn to Exodus 17. And let's just see this so we have this fresh in our minds. Exodus 17, starting at verse 8. And remember, this is even before the people have made it to Mount Sinai. Even before they started on their, their trek through the wilderness to go to the promised land. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, choose out us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And this is, of course, the passage where Moses is holding the rod and he's having victory, but when his hands start to drop, then the children of Israel start to, to lose the battle. And the whole picture is dependence on God. And so two men come up, Aaron and Hur, to help him hold up his hands. And God gives them, it says, verse 13, Joshua discomforted that, and that's Joshua and the armies of Israel, discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. In verse 14, the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. This is kind of like why I said this is an appointment on God's uh, divine calendar. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And that was... Um, at least a few hundred years, if not more, uh, before this actually happens. And, and God makes this clear in verse 16. He says, the Lord was sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, so now is the time, and Saul is the privileged person to be able to carry this out. And it really is. It's a great responsibility, but it's a great privilege that God is giving him here. Special mission, awesome responsibility to literally carry out the judgment of the Lord that he prophesied would happen a long time before. And then he, he gives in more details here. OK, and this is where it gets disturbing. Right. And now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, child and infant, really is what that means there. Oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. Um, utterly destroy really has the idea, you could describe it like this in the Hebrew, devoted to destruction. Now this, this sounds awful, and really it is. This is a severe judgment by a just God who has told people and, and revealed to people that he is just, that he is righteous, and at some point sin will be dealt with. 
yes, these people have had maybe hundreds of years of, of God's grace. And now their time is up and they're going to be dealt with in a very severe way. But this whole thing has the idea of, again, I said, um, devoted to destruction. What that means is in actuality, when the King James is utterly destroyed, that devoted to destruction means that these enemies in their destruction are literally being offered up to God as an act of worship. It literally is as hard as it is for our minds maybe to comprehend. This is a holy act of worship to God and the fact that they are supposed to destroy these people. Um, these pagan people will be refined through the fire of full destruction because they rejected God right down to the children. And it is an awful thing. Um, but this also shows that God deals with sin and with God's people at this time, God's people, this is a political kingdom and a people today. God's people are the church. We're more a, a spiritual entity in a way, and we don't have the same sorts of responsibilities or obligations that the children of Israel had back at this time. It's a totally different setting. Aren't we glad? Oh, what, what do we get to do today? We get to share the gospel with people and remind them that there is a much worse destruction in dealing with sin than even this devote these enemies, these Amalekites that were devoted to destruction. One day there will be those on a final judgment that will have an eternal refining by fire and will be devoted to eternal destruction because they have rejected God. And that's a message that we need to tell people about. But this is how God acted with his people at this time. And I hope that makes sense and maybe kind of clears up a little bit more. This is a very sobering thing. It's not a mission to be taken lightly. And unfortunately, well, we're, we're going to ask ourselves a question here. Is Saul up to the task? And I can almost imagine Samuel at the end of this thinking to himself, Saul, please get this right. Please don't mess this up. Because he's already seen some really concerning signs already. So what's going to happen? Well, let's see here. Verse 4, And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talim. I wasn't able to bring a map tonight, I'm sorry, but there's not a whole lot of places mentioned tonight. So we'll be, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, then you can share it with your friends and family, right? 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. So he assembles, gets the armies together. That's good. He's preparing for this. He's taking God seriously. And then another aspect of this, five, and Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. Okay, he's going to Amalek. He is doing, um, he is starting on the path of obedience that God has called him to do. And then he does something else that's really good here. In verse six, and Saul said unto the Kenites, this, this is a, a group of people that I don't necessarily believe are enemies of the people, but they're in the line of fire, so to speak, right? And Saul sends a messenger to these people and says, get out of Dodge, okay? Get out of town. Go, depart. Get ye down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So Saul, even to a certain extent, whether Samuel told him of the Kenites or whether he remembers his Israeli history, 
Very good. He tells innocent people who have been kind to the children of Israel, get out of the way. We don't want you guys to get hurt. We see the grace of God in the midst of this horrible uh, mission, right? So God's grace is still working here. So the Kenites said, thank you very much. We're out of here and departed from amongst the Amalekites. They're gone. And then verse seven, Saul obeys God, smote, defeated the idea there, the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur. And that is over against or it's east of Egypt. This was quite a territory here that God gave him victory in. And at that point, if we could just stop, we'd be very impressed with how King Saul has, has handled himself so far. And I will stop to take a drink here real quick. But unfortunately, we have to keep going to verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly, and utterly destroyed. destroyed. There's, There's that, that word again that literally means devoted to destruction. This is an act of worship to God. All the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul, and it says, and the people together, this is, has the idea of agreed together, they spared the king, Agag, and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, and of the fatted calves, basically, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. Now, folks, this language here really has the idea of, here is a, this does seem to have a language of a deliberate decision to not fully comply with what God has told them to do. This was deliberate. This was, in our minds, we're going to obey God in the way that we seem best. And we could kind of call this creative obedience. Folks, does God want creative obedience from us when he made it clear in his commands or even in his principles what he wants us to do? Now, there are times where in application of his commandments and principles, we have to pray, Lord, give me wisdom. I'm not really sure what to do in these circumstances, and God will guide us. But when he's made it clear, when he's given us that guidance, and we still say, but, you know, I'm going to tweak it a little bit here, Lord, and I'm going to do this, and I don't really, that's not my style. I'm just going to try this over here. That is not obedience. But. So they did not do everything they were supposed to do, but everything that was vile or the idea of despised and worthless, that they destroyed utterly. They did devote that to destruction, but that's not what God said. That's not the full obedience. Rob? I, think the, I was thinking hundreds of years in the future, which they had a similar issue when, when you brought up the idea of worship, right? that utterly destroys. So really they're worshiping God by offering to him all of the Amalekites, but yet they offered the, that which is vile, the refuse. And I think of the, the lame, have you brought me, right? Those that were sick, have you brought me? Would you bring these to the governor? No, you bring him the best, but you offer me, you know, the, the weak, the lame. And similar thing that's happening here. Mm -hmm. They gave God all of the worthless and they kept for themselves the best. Yeah. So as yeah. far as the worship aspect you brought up. That, that's a great, and, and then that ties back to a perennial problem with God's people from Cain all the way to Malachi. Throughout, throughout. It's a, that's a great um, application of that. Really, that, that's what's going on. And that makes it even more um, understandable to us what the problem is here. It's not obedience. Um, it's partial obedience. So we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. 
But now we get back to Samuel here uh, in verse 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And I think you know where I'm going to go next with this. Does it bother anybody that word, that verb in verse 11, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king? Um, I'm sure some of you had studied this out. What is God? Is God literally saying, because it comes across this way, doesn't it, on initial reading, that God is saying, you know, I just regret. And really the Hebrew word there, and this is a little bit different from repent. Repent means I've done something wrong and I need to turn. I don't I don't really like that translation word. Okay, this really has the idea of God at least regretting, certainly not saying he's done anything wrong. So we have to make that clear. But then still, God regrets. Anybody have any thoughts? What's going on here? My commentary says expression of sorrow. Mm. Oh, you guys got to the answer too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> God is saying that he hates that it had to be that way. Yeah. Things had to go the way they did. Just, just as God gave Adam and Eve a choice. He had to give them that choice to choose or not choose to follow. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's good. It reminds me of when Moses and I'll wipe them all out. Well, no, that's not really. Oh, yes. So many times through the Old Testament, I think of how a dad talks to his kids when, like, when a child is anticipating something and they're waiting, waiting, and, and the father says, I remember, don't worry, I remember. You know, just like God says, don't worry, I remember, I'm not forgetful. And in this situation, you know, you find out your child might have done something wrong. And you're like, you know, you're sorry that it happened that way. You can see that they can learn lessons through it and stuff. But just so often through scriptures, I see just a loving father in, in everything he says and does. And it's, it's a beautiful picture. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's, that's all a good part of this. That picture of a loving father, I think, is key to this, too. Um a, a number of commentaries that I would recommend for the layperson is called Focus on the Bible that really, for the most part, theologically stays pretty straight. It's good that way, but also it's written for the layperson and has a lot of, it's written well. This author in particular, Dale Ralph Davis, is very good, a comment, commentator that a lot of the, the, the layperson our church family in his whole could understand and relate to very well, and yet he doesn't veer off in some wrong directions. And he said this, I think this is helpful. Um, he's, there is a term called anthropomorphism. You ever heard that? That is attributing human forms or characteristics to God. And there's another one that's less known, anthropopathism. That's attributing human feelings to God. 
He says, next step is to introduce the term anthropomorphism, and I just gave that to you, or anthropopathism, in order to indicate that sometimes the Bible must use the grammar of humanity to communicate the truth about deity, that sometimes scripture stoops to use human categories to tell the truth about a God far beyond all of our categories. These are words that God uses to help our finite minds try to understand a infinite, sovereign God who has timing for everything and yet grieves over sin. And he graciously uses these terms to help us to understand, to um, stoop to our understanding while still being accurate. Another aspect of this word repent that I think is important, it does show it can be used for great compassion or great grief, like some of you have said. I really think that's where this this applies, that God grieves, that he is greatly grieved or moved in a divine, I hate to say emotional way, because when we think of emotion, we think of weakness. But it does show us, folks, when we think of a lot of times, when we think of when we sin of the Holy Spirit being grieved, right? Let's not forget our Heavenly Father is grieved immensely too and this is just one picture of that he is grieved over Saul and his sin even though he knew it was going to happen this is it wasn't a surprise to him so he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments and so basically think about where Samuel is at it says here it grieved Samuel but really this has the idea of anger he was he was angry and he cried unto the Lord all night why because ultimately, remember, God told Samuel to anoint Saul as king when Samuel had his reservations. And now God's saying, now you need to confront this king that you anointed. And I think, we don't know for sure, but I think there's a little bit, as you can imagine, Samuel's like, Lord, I, you know, I, I didn't really, This would, if I can put this in a certain way, this was your idea. And now I've got to go deal with him. This is frustrating. And, and I had higher hopes. Samuel had higher hopes for this king. I mean, he saw as well, tall guy, handsome guy. Yeah, the people love him. And, and Samuel's still going to struggle with this when he goes to meet the next king, but we won't get into that. Um, and so he's frustrated. And you can tell in his grief, he cried to the night, the Lord all night. Uh, by the way, folks, this is a sign that you really are taking seriously your ministry and other people's lives when they sin and when they do wrong and it grieves you. If you are helping someone along and working with someone and they mess up or, or they have to be confronted or maybe they have to, they disqualify themselves from ministry or whatever. And there's not really a sense of grief in your heart that ought to send up a red flag. Um, th that ought to show you something's not right here because Samuel grieved over the sin of Saul, just like his heavenly father did. It, it, it um, broke him. It really did. And yet the next day he's willing. He's, of course, he's going to be obedient to God. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, he was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he basically saw Samuel's getting the idea of where Saul is, and behold, he sent him up a place or a monument and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. Gilgal, the place where Israel renewed the covenant. Gilgal, the place where Saul offered 
sacrifices and lost the dynasty. And now there's going to be greater loss for Saul at the same place. And Samuel came to Saul. Here's the point of confrontation. And what did Saul do? Both of the men that are the problems in this narrative, both are have a totally inappropriate reaction to God's man being in front of them. And it's, you know, we, we, as much as this is, sounds arrogant, we all can relate to this, right? Sins being done and whoever ourselves or another person has really no idea of how wrong their sin is or how grievous their sin is. Saul's clueless here. Blessed be thou, the Lord, Samuel. Oh, good to see you. I've been wondering where you've been. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I did it, Samuel. That special mission you gave me, I obeyed. I did it. And I don't think at this point, this is my interpretation, I don't. I think Saul is somewhat sincere here. I don't think he's trying to cover anything up. I think in his own mind, he did. He just tweaked it a little bit. But it's still, we, we accomplished everything God wanted to accomplish. And... We just made a few small changes, but notice he doesn't mention that part until Samuel brings it up in that awkward next verse. And Samuel said, oh, really, Saul? Well, what meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of oxen, which I hear? And I can just see Samuel praying, Lord, keep my temper under control. Why do I hear cattle and animal noises, Saul, if you've obeyed God? Why do I hear those things? And Saul said, oh, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Always a good sign of leadership when you blame it on people when you do all the time, right? I'm being very facetious there. You know, sometimes even pastors can, can fall into that prey. Well, instead of addressing their own weaknesses, well, people just have done things differently. It's a sign of a weak leader. Saul says, the people spared the best of the sheep and the, the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord, and this is interesting, thy God, not my God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. We've devoted to destruction, just like God wanted us to. Yeah, we were a little creative. We, you know, and this is, I see this as Saul's pattern. Remember um, when he made that crazy oath? And the people were so hungry that they literally ate in the way that they ate. We'll just leave it that, right? And people came up to Saul and said, Saul, um, the people are disobeying God. Look what they're doing. And he looks, oh, that, that's pretty bad. I agree with God in this point. Um, I, I don't think they should do that. It's almost like Saul thinks in his mind that he and God get together for a discussion. And then God gives his input. And then Saul takes that and decides how he best is going to to uh, obey. It really kind of comes across to me that way. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? Has that ever bothered you? It should, because <laughs> God isn't my co-pilot. He's my pilot. And by his grace, you know, I, he tells me what to do. But I, honestly, if Saul could have one of those bumper stickers, I think that's his mentality. God's my co-pilot. He kind of gives his input, and then I just do what I'm supposed to do. And it's the same here. Yeah, God wanted me to destroy the Amalekites. But you know what? I just felt like this King Agag, he seemed real repentant. And we had all the best of the sheep and the oxen. And really, you know, God would want us to keep those for maybe something for sacrifices or whatever. In actuality, um, it's, it's true what Rob said. 
um, that they they actually disobeyed that whole principle. And he's but but in his mind, I think that he really didn't think at this point that he had obeyed God. Creative obedience. Did I hear somebody? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As he says, all the, all the rest, the rest we have utterly destroyed. Well, we can destroy the king and say we're told. Yeah. Yeah. He, I thought he had mentioned Agag in there. Yeah. Sorry. We'll, we'll, let's get to that. All right. Um, I lost my place. 16. Thank you. And then Samuel said unto Saul, stop or stay. Stop right there, Saul. Samuel's had enough. And I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. Let me give you, I'm the prophet here. Let me give you what God's told me. And he said unto him, speak, say on. And Samuel said, when thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. When you were yet humble, maybe he's even pointing out, remember when you were hiding in the baggage, Saul? And you, you had been humbled and you weren't, didn't think that you were worthy or you didn't feel like you could do this. Um, and you were little in your own sight. You were made a leader of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king. The Lord made you king, Saul. And now you don't get to creatively obey and tell God what you think, how he, you think he ought to be obeyed. You've come full circle here. Okay. Um, from humility to supreme arrogance. And so the Lord sent thee on a mission, on a journey. And here he's pointing this out again. You had a special, important, serious, sobering mission, right? He said to do this. This was important. Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites. I was clear and fight against them until they be consumed. This was for the glory of God. This was worship. And you gave false worship. You did not obey. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly or pounce upon the spoil? Take the best for yourselves, basically, in the midst of this. Oh, let's take this. And didst evil in the sight of the Lord. Saul, your creative obedience was not obedience at all. It was wicked. It was evil before God. Because he had a purpose for this mission, and you blew it. You totally... um, disregarded the main purpose for this and you did things your own way and you went your own way and Saul like those that don't see their sin and want to argue he continues to try to argue with Samuel but Saul said to Samuel yay well Samuel why make such a big deal about this for I've obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone I completed my mission is the idea there when the Lord sent me and well, I've brought the king of Amalek, but I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites, like you said. Again, in his own mind, he's, he, it, he, you, can, you can sense he's thinking, yeah, this is what this was my interpretation of what God told me to do, but I did it. No, you didn't. But the people, and now he's blaming on the people, the people took up the spoil, sheep, and auction, the best the cheap, the best of things, which should have been utterly destroyed, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And he's obviously, he's understanding that Samuel is taking this much more seriously than he did, and now he's trying to push it off on the people. Well, you know, Sam, you know how it is with people. They just, they wanted the best of the oxen, the sheep, and 
how could I say no? As long as they did most of, of the work here, it, it's okay. Don't make such a big deal of this. Saul doesn't have a, an important enough, a heightened sense of awareness of how, how um, serious sin is to God. And folks, we, we need to be careful when we deal with sin in our own lives and with others. Yes, with, with grace, with carefulness. But what God says is serious. Let's make sure that we don't play around with that, that we somehow lessen it or make it trite or joke around about these things. God is serious about sin and it's needed to be dealt with. And Samuel said, here's where we'll finish tonight. We'll continue on this tomorrow because we're running a little late here. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than the sacrifice. I heard that that principle before. And to hearken in the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness, so the idea really there is presumption. That you should presume that you know how to best carry out God's will. And he's told you specifically how to do it. That's presumption. And it's iniquity. And it's idolatry. And thou, it shows, Saul, you've rejected the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. The Lord is not your co-pilot and you're stealing the, steering the plane, flying the plane. But you in actuality have rejected when you do this. You've rejected God as being king in your own life. And therefore, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Sobering words and something that we need to continue to evaluate in our own lives. We tell, we, have, we tell our kids and have conversations with our kids on this. I mean, you have with yours. But when we tell them to do something and we explain, you know, we don't want your version of how you best think um, you should obey us. But we want you to obey just like we've said. You know, it's that whole thing we're trying to explain to them. We're not interested in, in your creativity and in, in coming up with your own way of doing something that we specifically said how to do it. Just, just carry it out the way that you said. And folks, and to some certain extent or another, we all have tendencies to do this. And we need to be careful that we're examining our lives. Are we truly obeying God in the way that he has made clear in his word? Or are we being a little too creative at times? In actuality, not really obeying him at all. And in actuality, trying to steer our own plane or rule our own lives. When we interpret God's word in our own way and for our own selfish advantages, we have literally put ourselves on the throne rather than God. And we're in serious trouble at that point. And Saul's going to find that out as well. So as we go to prayer tonight, let's make sure that the Lord is on the throne in our hearts. And we're not trying to fly our own plane or uh, drive our own vehicle.